A creature never before known to man. The vampire, you are both sightings. The sea monster vanished without a trace. Good evening, and welcome back to Beyond the Fringe, the weekly podcast where we'll take a look at some of history's greatest mysteries and then try to make some sense of it all. On this episode of BTF, we're going to be taking a look at the media sensation, notice I didn't say true story this time, that garnered worldwide attention in the summer of 1997. And while it's true that events actually happened, what actually happened is not what most people think happened, happened. And what did happen is certainly not what the New Age UFO set would have you believe. We're going to take a look at this incident, or more to the point, incidents, plural, that have become known in popular culture as the Phoenix Lights. It all started on the evening of 13 March 1997 when hundreds of people in Nevada, Arizona, and as far south as Sonora, Mexico, reported what they described as a slow-moving aircraft that glided silently over the desert on a north-to-south heading. Estimates of the object's dimensions ranged from those of a jumbo jet to the size of downtown Phoenix. Lights on this object were described as white and orange and yellow and red and reddish-yellow. And depending on who you talk to and when, the craft was shaped like an inverted V or a sweeping arc, or it changed from a V to an arc and then back to a V again. There are almost as many variables and versions of what was seen that night as there are witnesses who claim to have seen it. And while disparities in eyewitness accounts swing wildly across the spectrum, Ardent ufologists the world over are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the object was an alien spacecraft and that any argument to the contrary is either a military-slash-government cover-up or the result of sane individuals mistaking a city-sized star cruiser for something more mundane. This story also stands as a monumental example of how many news outlets and purported educational television programs have morphed from imparting information in an impartial manner to sensationalistic infotainment at the expense of facts. Many of these outlets willingly chose to ignore scientific evidence and explanations, preferring instead to parade a lone and since discredited image analyst before the camera whose claims about the lights were not only self-servingly biased, but it is scientifically impossible to reach the results he claimed to have achieved. The mystery we'll be exploring on tonight's podcast is not that of the lights themselves, because, as you'll clearly see, there is no mystery there. The only mystery surrounding the Phoenix Lights is why this has ever been considered a paranormal event and why it is still considered as such today and how a handful of New Age Melvins concocted and co-opted this story for their own personal, financial, and even political gain. In order to understand the phenomenon properly, I'll need to take you back to the night in question. As is our modus operandi here at BTF, I'll first tell you the tale, as it has been popularly presented in the press and in paranormal circles. 
and then I'll break it down, item by item, and attempt to make sense of the myths surrounding the case, as well as filling in the facts that so many ufologists conveniently seem to leave out of the narrative. So let's get the ball rolling here with the tale of the Phoenix Lights. On a warm spring night in 1997, Mitch Stanley was taking advantage of the clear weather to do a bit of stargazing from the yard of his Scottsdale, Arizona home. The sun had set about 6.30 that evening, and the twilight along the horizon was fading into night. But there was a slim, waxing crescent moon shining overhead just two days before first quarter, the light from which was washing out some of the fainter stars in the darkening sky. Using his 10-inch, home-built, Dobsonian reflecting telescope, Stanley was looking forward to examining in great detail some of the myriad of astronomical objects that the night would offer. Mars was almost directly overhead in Taurus, and half a dozen other clusters and nebulae of the Messier catalog were in prime position as well. But perhaps the star of the night show was going to be Comet Hale-Bopp, whose massive gaseous tail arced across the heavens as it made its closest approach to the sun in its nearly 4,000-year elliptical orbit. But something else was about to appear in the northern Arizona sky that night. Something that would set off a chain of events that would capture the imagination of the world. In Henderson, Nevada, at approximately 6.55 Pacific time, which was 7.55 in Arizona, a man reported seeing a large V-shaped object moving through the night sky on a northwest to southeast heading. He described this large V as having six lights on the leading edge of the craft, which he estimated to be about the size of a Boeing 747. Next to report this giant aircraft was a former police officer in Paulden, Arizona. He was driving north, and he witnessed what he described as a cluster of five reddish or orange lights, four traveling in formation, with the fifth trailing behind. The officer stated that the individual lights appeared to consist of two smaller lights each. Upon returning home, the witness followed the lights with a pair of binoculars until they disappeared over the horizon to the south. Prescott Valley was the site of the next sighting when Devin Lorenz and his Aunt Jamie witnessed the formation from the porch of his house. Again, the lights were set to form a triangle, but this time the point light was white and the others were red. The object passed directly overhead and seemed to be flying at a relatively low altitude. The craft didn't make a sound as it banked to the right and was lost from view to the southeast. Another Prescott witness claimed to have seen the lights and said that the trailing light had come up alongside the others and then fallen back to the rear of the formation. As the trajectory of the strange lights took them over the metropolitan Phoenix area, more and more sightings were recorded. Grabbing his portable camcorder, Terry Proctor was able to film the moving V from for several minutes. Though the quality of the video images left a lot to be desired, they did show that there was something in the sky that night. Bill Greiner was driving a cement truck down a mountain road north of the city when he looked up to see a formation of bright lights apparently hovering over the desert not far from Phoenix. He was later quoted as saying, I've seen something that can't be explained, that don't belong here. Soon, scores of other sky watchers reported seeing what appeared to be a gigantic disc-shaped craft slowly materializing over the Estrella Mountains on the outskirts of Phoenix. 
From his home in Moon Valley, north of downtown Phoenix, Mike Christon was able to videotape the lights from the time they began materializing over the Estrella Mountains in the southwestern sky. But almost as quickly as the lights appeared, they blinked out one at a time, and the night was dark yet again. Reports continued to come in from areas south of Phoenix all the way down to the Mexican border near Sonora concerning the Flying V. But by 8.50 p.m. that evening, the V had drifted beyond the horizon to the south and was gone. Over the next three months, talk of the strange lights that appeared over Arizona that night became less frequent until it all but faded into memory. That is, until June 18th of that year, when a story written by Richard Price appeared in the USA Today. This national exposure of the story set off a firestorm of interest in the incident, and soon the pool of witnesses claiming to have seen the light swelled from a handful to a hundred to over a thousand. It wasn't long before other news outlets were reporting on the phenomenon, which had become known as the Phoenix Lights. News teams armed with cameras and mics descended on Phoenix and scoured the streets looking for anyone eager to recount their experience in ever more spectacular detail. Inquiries into possible military involvement turned up nothing. As officials at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base, Luke Air Force Base, and the Marine Air Wing at Yuma all denied that any of their planes were in the air that night. And air traffic control at Phoenix's Sky Harbor Airport reported nothing unusual on their scopes. Local Councilwoman Frances Emma Barwood jumped into the fray by calling for an official investigation into the nature of the lights. On the other hand, the governor of Arizona at the time, Fife Symington III, called a press conference to announce that they had found who was responsible, but made a mockery of the briefing after having an aide dressed as an alien join him at the podium. Jim Delatoso, an image analyst with Village Labs in Phoenix, was featured prominently in the media during that time, including programs on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel. Utilizing sophisticated imaging software to analyze the spectra from the lights of various video recordings, Dilatoso concluded that whatever the lights were, they were not flares or any known aircraft. Since the summer of 1997, the myth and the fascination surrounding the Phoenix Lights has continued to grow. Today it is held up as one of the most well-documented and thoroughly investigated mass UFO sightings in history. There have been books, there have been movies, both fictional and documentary, produced about the Phoenix Lights. For many, this event stands as proof positive that extraterrestrials have visited our planet. With tales such as this, it's customary to say something like, the only problem is, and then fill in the blank, but with this tale, there are so many problems with it that it's tough to know where to start addressing the many facets of this sighting and exposing the lights and the self-stylized experts who support the alien spacecraft angle for what they truly are. The first and most glaring problem is reconciling the different sightings that so many people reported. The first reports connected to the Phoenix Lights concerned the V formation, moving across the sky from northwest to southeast, and they came in just before 8 o'clock, Phoenix time. The last reports near the Mexican border were called in around 8.45. But the bright arc of lights that appeared over the mountains and hovered over Phoenix appeared just as the clock struck 10 p.m. 
over an hour after the V formation had disappeared over the horizon. If that's the case, then how do we tie the two together? Simply put, we don't. These were obviously two separate and distinct events, neither having anything to do with the other. For UFO advocates, tying them together expounds the mystery. For the non-delusional, separating the events causes the whole house of cards to collapse. Let's take a look at each event separately and explore the nature and cause of each. And to do this, we'll begin where the tale itself began, in the backyard of amateur astronomer Mitch Stanley. If you remember from the story, Stanley and his mother were stargazing that fateful evening using Mitch's homemade 10-inch Dobsonian reflecting telescope. Now, for those unfamiliar with homemade telescopes, here's a brief rundown. Almost all professional astronomical scopes and amateur telescopes are reflecting telescopes that use a large concave mirror to collect light rather than a single lens. These type of telescopes are relatively inexpensive and easy to construct. I myself have built four of them in my time. And these telescopes can offer amateurs fantastic views of celestial objects. In fact, a 10-inch telescope of this type, like the one Stanley used, gathers more than 1,500 times more light than the human eye is able to. Now, the Dobsonian part of this equation describes the simple alt-azimuth mount which amateurs often use. What I mean is, unlike professional and commercially available equatorial mounts that mirror the movement of the object as it crosses the sky, Dobsonian mounts are basically constructed from plywood, and they just move up and down and side to side. Easy enough. But this does require that the user adjust for right ascension and declination longitude and latitude in the sky, as it were, constantly and at the same time. The reason I'm going into detail for this is to show that it is a challenge to follow a moving object with a large telescope unless the object is either moving slowly or at a great distance from the observer. When Mitch Stanley first caught sight of the mysterious V moving across the sky, his first instinct was to turn the big eye of his telescope on the target. As he focused in on the lights, his mother asked him what he was seeing. His answer was a, was a single word. Planes. Stanley described each light as two separate points at the ends of squarish wings, and even under considerable magnification, appeared small in his eyepiece, ergo, the planes he was watching were flying at a considerable altitude. But here it is, plain and simple. Pun intended. Airplanes flying in formation with squared-off wings at high altitude. Translation, military aircraft, and while not a certainty, the likely culprit was the A-10 Warthog, which bears a striking resemblance to this description. Now, these aircraft are a familiar sight in the southern Arizona sky, which is home to two Air Force bases and a Marine Corps air wing. Something else that needs mentioning is that after his sighting, Mitch Stanley related his story to fellow astronomer Jack Jones. After the story became national news and theories of alien spacecraft began spreading like wildfire, Jones thought it responsible to inform the local authorities who were investigating the case about the planes Mitch Stanley had seen through his telescope. He called both the offices of Councilwoman Barwood and 
Jim Dilatoso at Village Labs to alert them to his eyewitness account, or this eyewitness account, that could in essence have put the whole thing to rest then and there. But neither Barwood nor Delatoso ever bothered to return Jones' phone calls, nor did they ever attempt to contact Mitch Stanley in person. One of the arguments often put forward is, if these were indeed military aircraft, then why were they flying at such extreme altitudes near established airbases? Well, just because these aircraft were flying through this particular area does not necessarily mean that they were attached to any of the nearby units or that one of the nearby bases might have been their destination. Military aircraft routinely crisscross the country as units, often to train in different locations to simulate different geographical challenges and scenarios. Also, military planes are constantly on the move for a myriad of operational necessities, air show appearances, equipment transfers, delivery flights, you name it. On this particular night, this high-altitude formation was crossing over the area between Las Vegas and Phoenix, which sees some of the busiest commercial traffic in the southern U.S. Passenger planes, depending on type, usually cruise about 36,000 feet or below, and descend to lower and lower altitudes when approaching airports in preparation for landing, right? So in order to stay out of their way, an aircraft or a formation of aircraft merely transiting the airspace would naturally stay well above the approach corridor leading into an airport. Now for the question as to why they didn't show up on radar. Actually, they may have but didn't warrant scrutiny. Here's the skinny on that. For starters, ATC, or air traffic control, at commercial airports tracks aircraft using transmissions emitted from what are known as transponders. It's a digital handshake, as it were, and identifies the aircraft via a unique radio signal. And if a flight plan has been filed with the FAA, it will show up on air traffic control displays as their like airline code or their aircraft type and flight or tail number. It would also show its altitude. There are no dark secrets here. ADSB transponder information is publicly available and allows apps like FlightAware to show users real-time updates on flights progress from all over the country. You can download these apps on your phone, but this does not apply to military aircraft. For security reasons, movement of military hardware and personnel are more often than not classified, and therefore will not be displayed the same on ATC screens, if at all, if they were outside the airport's radar capabilities. Also, high-altitude aircraft flying over Phoenix at that time would not have been tracked necessarily by the Phoenix airport, but rather by the FAA complex in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And even if they had shown up on the monitors at Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix, the whole of the formation probably would have appeared just as an asterisk on the screen. Air traffic controllers are trained to recognize different radar return signatures and would not have been concerned with aircraft passing high above their area of responsibility if they pose no threat to commercial traffic. Like I said, there are three military airbases in the immediate vicinity of Sky Harbor Airport, 
and every controller in the tower there is intimately familiar with how these fighter aircraft appear on their scopes. This whole matter could have been settled if someone, anyone, at that time had requisitioned the ATC tapes of that night for review. According to the FAA, if a request had been filed prior to March 28th of that year, remember the incident happened on the 13th, then the tapes would have been preserved and a permanent record of that night's activities would be available for review. But since nobody asked for the tape within the two-week requisition window, it was simply erased and formatted for future use. Now this is telling. Because if the lights seen that night had raised immediate questions or concerns, certainly someone would have requested the ATC tape be preserved. The fact that no one did this shows that no one at that time thought it was a big deal. It wasn't until after the USA Today article that anyone got their panties in a wad over the lights. So the only mystery here is from where did these aircraft originate and to where were they going? Well, the answer to this may never be known. As, as we've heard, military operations are often classified and never routine. Pilots and aviators, Navy and Marine Corps flyers are known as aviators, not pilots, can be tasked to fly almost anywhere, at any time, and on a moment's notice. It's not like at an airline where the same flight is operated on the same day at the same time using the same plane. And even if an investigator were able to track down a viable lead as to the base of origin for this mystery sortie, the records of such a flight would probably still be classified to this day. And the servicemen and women who were at the controls of said aircraft on that date would certainly not remember a routine training exercise, or a cross-country flight that happened 24 years ago. The fact that no one else has come forward admitting that they were piloting these mystery jets speaks to one of these two reasons. Of course, there were witnesses who claimed that what they saw was a gigantic V-shaped craft that glided silently over the desert that evening, Let's take a look at the issues with these claims. One, video footage of the V formation, though shaky and grainy, definitely shows that the lights that made up the V were moving in relation to each other. Thus, they were independent of one another and therefore not part of a single aircraft. Other eyewitness testimony and the videotapes rule out the gigantic solid V. And two, the claim that the aircraft was gliding silently through the sky. Okay, The aircraft in question were probably traveling close to about 40,000 feet in order to stay clear of the commercial air traffic. So, of course, the lights were moving silently because they were seven and a half miles away and directly overhead, even further if they weren't directly above the observer. And three, the claim that the craft was gliding slowly at low altitude over the landscape. Now, at such high altitude, the plane would have appeared to be moving slowly with respect to a fixed point on the ground. In that the distance traversed would have been much greater than a low-flying aircraft. Have you ever been to an air show? 
When you watch an aircraft fly by, even at a comparatively low altitude, say 10,000 feet, the planes seem to glide by at a much slower speed than they are actually traveling. But when a jet does a flyby at 40, 50 feet off the deck, it's like trying to track a bullet with the naked eye. It is a blur. So the higher the altitude at which the aircraft flies, the slower it appears in relation to a fixed point on the ground. Now remember, the first reports came in from Henderson, Nevada at around 8 o'clock. Okay? The last reports came in near Tucson, near the border, at around 8.45. That's a distance of about 350 miles. An aircraft traveling from southeastern Nevada to the Mexican border is not slowly gliding across the desert. It would be moving at roughly 435 miles an hour. You want to take a guess at the max speed of an A-10 Warhog aircraft? Officially, they're listed at 439 miles per hour. <laughs> but military specs on hardware are rarely presented in their actual combat readiness level, so it could have been even faster than that. Now, some have stated that they were sure that it was a solid object because it blocked out the stars between the lights. But remember, it was about an hour after sunset. There was a quarter crescent moon in the sky. And there was also light pollution initially from Las Vegas and then from Phoenix. These three factors together would blot out many of the dimmer stars until after the moon had set and twilight had completely faded. And I'm sure that many were convinced that they did indeed see lines connecting these lights. This illusionary effect, known as periodolia, is a form of apophenia, which is a more general term for the human tendency to seek patterns in random information. This is borne out by the fact that witnesses saw the lights move independently. Only a handful of observers connected the dots, so to speak. And then there's the video evidence showing the independent movement of the lights as well. So event number one was not a wedged-shaped alien craft drifting silently overhead that night. It was not even a single entity. It was a formation of aircraft, probably A-10 military fighters, a description that jives nicely with the square-winged aircraft described by Mitch Stanley, who was the only person to see them magnified through a telescope. And he thought little of it. Planes. Remember, that's all he said. Planes. Now, the ceiling for these planes is listed at 45,000 feet. But like I said, if there's one thing that we know about the military is that they're not always upfront and honest about the uh, limitations of their equipment. I'm sure they probably lowball that and they could fly much higher than that. But at that altitude, the sound of their engines would most likely not have reached the ground. And even if it had, it certainly wouldn't sound like the roar of a jet turbine. And that it was seen in Nevada just before 8 and then Tucson at 8.50 means that it was traveling in the neighborhood of 430 miles an hour. No matter how you slice it, that's nobody's definition of gliding slowly across the sky. With the mystery of the V dispensed with, let's turn our attention to event number two. The bright arcing lights seen hovering over Estrella Mountains at around 10 p.m. that evening. 
It was completely dark out by then, the moon sinking low in the western sky and the V formation long gone. It was then that a series of bright white lights began appearing in the sky over the desert to the southwest of Phoenix. One by one, these brilliant little orbs appeared above the desert and formed a sweeping, evenly spaced arc with the leading edge pointing slightly down and toward the city center. Some witnesses said that the lights looked like windows on the leading edge of enormous disc-shaped craft. But they didn't move. The lights just hung in the air, motionless, until after about five minutes they slowly blinked out and were gone. Some claimed that the lights simply vanished, while others were certain that they flew away at an impossible speed. And air traffic control at nearby Sky Harbor Airport reported nothing on their scopes. But when we look at the true nature of the lights, there is less mystery here than there was with the first event. Let me start with my personal take on this. Back in the 1980s, I was stationed in Germany with the 3rd Field Artillery Brigade, 1st Armored Division. As a 13 Fox, or Field Artillery Ford Observer, I was a member of what was known as a FIST team. Now, our mission was to make our way by stealth to and even beyond enemy lines in conjunction with the infantry, locate high-priority targets, determine the grid coordinates of these targets, and then radio their positions back to the gun bunnies, manning the howitzers a mile or so behind us. And once the artillery shells started falling, we'd radio in corrections until the rounds were landing on their target. At that point, we'd call for fire for effect, which meant target in range, now pour it on. Seems like a lot of fun. And for the most part, it was. And in the fall of 1987, our battalion participated in an exercise known as a CALFEX. That's an acronym for Combined Arms Live Fire Exercise. Battlefield conditions, live ammunition, to the works. Until then, our first our fist training had been pretty milk toast, running simulations in a classroom and, and dry fire exercises on base. But this was the first time that we were doing what we were trained to do for real, so to speak. So when we got the go-ahead, our fist team and the grunts began moving out and making our way up to our OP, or observation point, through the low-lying brush. I didn't see the need for stealth in that it was pitch black dark, and I could barely see the guy in front of me. But just as I was loggly gagging my way up to the point, daylight exploded over the landscape, and I was almost blinded. Like kitchen cockroaches when the lights turn on, the infantry guys just hit the deck and scramble for cover. A couple of the other fire support guys followed suit, but for a few seconds I just stood there mesmerized at this miniature sun drifting slowly across the field, turning night into day and illuminating everything for a 100 meters in every direction. I think it was finally the 50 cal gunner that dragged me down to the ground to take cover, but by then it was too late. A voice crackled over the loudspeaker and announcing, you dead, running again. I didn't make many friends that night with the grunts for making us start over the first time, but we ran the mission again. And after a few other squads had had their turn, we did it again. And by the end, we were cooking with gas. We were hitting the dirt and melting into the ground whenever the sky lit up again. And when the light burned out, inching forward to our objective and calling in the artillery barrage, it turned out to be a great exercise. Over the course of my three years in Germany, I participated in, or was able to observe at close range, several of these live fire exercises. 
and I became very fast and familiar friends with combat illumination. I don't bring this up to brag. I do so to demonstrate that I do have familiarity and training with military aerial illumination. So when national news outlets began running this story about the supposed mystery lights appearing over Arizona in 1997, I still remember taking one look at these orbs captured in the grainy videos and recognizing them immediately. They were flares, plain and simple. They popped like flares, they drifted like flares, the color was spot on, and the brightness was uniform. I even remember talking to a buddy of mine who was also in the Army about the same time I was, and his immediate reaction, oh yeah, those were flares. Most, but not all, of the flares that I worked with in Germany were mortar-launched things that popped relatively low to the ground and burned out pretty quickly. But occasionally, we would have to contend with flares launched from aircraft, which were bigger, brighter, and longer-lasting. The latter could generate enough light to play baseball by. And it was this type of flare that I was sure that I was seeing in the video of the Phoenix Lights. So what makes me so sure that they were flares and not the first wave of an Independence Day invasion? First of all, as I've said, was the appearance. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, they were by all witness accounts bright white lights, not the reddish-orange described in the sightings of the V-formation. And then there was the dispersal. If you've seen this video, and if you haven't, I encourage you to look it up on YouTube. You see that the lights appear one at a time in a darkened sky, evenly spaced, and in an easy sweeping arc, just as one would expect to see as an aircraft is launching flares while in a banking turn. This brings up the objection to the flare explanation, and that is that the belief that even the Air Force wouldn't have conducted aerial maneuvers and dropped flares over a populated area like Phoenix, right? Would they? No, obviously not. But just because these flares could be seen from Phoenix does not mean that they were inside the city limits or even anywhere near the city. In 1997, one of the most commonly used aerial-launched military flares was the LUU-2B-B illumination flare. These puppies are not your typical 4th of July picnic model. The 2B-B flare was manufactured by Thiokol, and you might remember that name. Uh, they used to be called Morton Thiokol, and they were the ones behind the O-rings that failed and caused the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. But this flare, on the other hand, appeared to be a resounding success. The flare itself is 3 feet long, 5 inches in diameter, and weighs about 30 pounds. This is a big piece of hardware. Now, a heavy flare needs a big, heavy-duty parachute, and the 2B-B carried a whopper measuring 18 feet across. When deployed, it operated on a mechanical three-gear timer that would allow the user to set the drop to pop times from 250 feet all the way down to 11,000 feet. It is attached to the launcher by a lanyard, requiring an expected 30 pounds of force to start the timer. Now, when the timer counts down to zero, the parachute deploys and the candle ignites, and magnesium fuel burns a bright white light for about five minutes. Now, during the final two minutes of the descent, the aluminum housing that contains the candle and the timing mechanism also burns up. 
Now, sometimes this burning aluminum may cause the flame to burn slightly red toward the end of its life cycle. After the last of the fuel is consumed and the housing is melted away, the flare burns out. At that time, an explosive bolt pops and one of the chute lines detaches and that causes the whole parachute to collapse and whatever is left after burnout drifts harmlessly to earth. But the most amazing spec of this flare is its brightness. A standard roadside flare, like one that you might see at a traffic accident, burns at an intensity of between 500 and 1500 candle power. A marine flare, like you would launch from a flare gun as a distress signal from a boat, ranges in intensity from 15 to 30,000 lumens. But our friend, the old LUU-2B-B, emits a whopping 2 million candle power light that can be seen virtually to the horizon, barring obstructions. This visibility range is important. You see, many of the sightings of this version of the Phoenix Lights came from witnesses in the Scottsdale and Paradise Valley area, which is north and east of the city. Try this demonstration, if you can. Take a map of Phoenix and put your finger on Scottsdale. Now, trace a straight line west or to the left and slightly south through the Estrella Mountains until you are about halfway between Phoenix and Yuma. Notice the area where your finger lands on. It would be right in the middle of the Barry M. Goldwater aerial bombing range. This targeting area is used year-round for live-fire aerial combat maneuvers by military planes from around the country. And operations to this range often originate from three nearby air bases. 150 miles southwest of Phoenix, in Yuma, Arizona, is a Marine Corps air station. And there's Davis-Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson, which is 100 miles to the southeast. Finally, there's Luke Air Force Base, which is literally on the outskirts of downtown Phoenix itself, sitting between Webb and Litchfield Park. Now we come to the part where the conspiracy theorists go bananas. Soon after the appearance of the Phoenix Lights, inquiries were made to all three installations. Military spokespersons and liaisons stated that neither Yuma, nor Davis-Monthan, nor Luke had any planes based at those three installations in the air that night. And that's 100% accurate. Duty logs prove that not a single aircraft based at those stations were in the skies over the bombing range at the time the Phoenix lights were witnessed. But this is a classic case of getting the right answer to the wrong question. This whole miasma could have been avoided then and there had investigators looking into the matter not overqualified the question. The question as asked was, were there any aircraft based at these airfields in the air that night when the question should have been, did any aircraft take off or land from any of these bases? 
The answer to the first question is indeed no. The answer to the second question is yes. Because that week, a squad of A-10 warthogs from the Maryland Air National Guard was in Tucson for winter training and, though not technically based there, had flown in and out of Davis-Monthan on the night in question. Not only had they been flying that night, but according to Arizona Air Guard Public Information Officer Captain Eileen Benz, one of the Maryland's A-10s had several flares remaining after their training run and had dropped them over the North Tack Range some 30 miles southwest of Phoenix at an altitude of 15,000 feet. This was presumably to ensure that they completely burned up before hitting the ground. The time the flares were released? No surprise here, 10 p.m. Now, civilians might wonder why the military would discard rather expensive equipment used in training exercises rather than just bringing it back for later use. Well, the answer is simply a matter of safety. It's better to preemptively dispose of unused explosive or incendiary ordnance before returning to base rather than having it ignite or, even worse, blow up during a hard landing or while being offloaded. And I think we can all understand that the budget for the U.S. military can probably absorb the cost of a few leftover flares. Yeah, I think it's a bit dirty pool on the part of the public relations office at Davis-Monthan for not volunteering that information concerning a visiting squad of fighter aircraft that were active that night. But again, we're talking about the military here. Let's say that the press did call the contact number for Davis-Monthan and did speak to someone at the duty desk or at the PR office. The airman who took those calls would have then passed such a request on to his or her supervisors to ensure that the information wasn't classified and therefore could be released to the public. Other phone calls would then have had to be made to check with the units themselves about activities that night, and after all the runaround and more calls and verifications, if the units had said that there was no activity reported from their duty logs, then that's what was passed on back to the media. One question asked, one question answered. And no one seemed to have felt the need for follow-up or for verification. And that's on the investigators. Because had the tower log been included in this initial inquiry, which includes all takeoffs and landings, not just those of the unit station stationed there, we wouldn't be in this mess. In 2000, the Maryland Air National Guard would include this interesting chapter of the lights over Phoenix in their uh, unit history, stating that the 104th Fighter Squadron had been responsible for the incident. Lieutenant Colonel Ed Jones, uh, an A-10 pilot with the Maryland Air National Guard at that time, held that he was part of that training exercise during which the flares were dropped. And it's not as if this information was late coming to the party. An article in the Arizona Republic newspaper claimed that flares were responsible for the light show on the night in question, and that piece was published in said newspaper in 1997, not long after the event occurred. Also, within days of the USA Today article hitting the newsstands and setting this whole thing off, Reporter Blair Meeks from local KPNX Channel 12 in Phoenix 
captured on video a pre-scheduled and verified flare drop over the Goldwater Range. Now, these brightly glowing orbs behaved much as the March mystery lights had and were clearly visible from the Phoenix suburbs. But flare drop doesn't hold the same cachet as alien invasion, and the story created little interest outside the Phoenix area. So, there were, in fact, planes in the air, and they were conducting military training missions in the northeastern corner of the bombing range, and one of them did drop a group of nine flares over the area at about 10 p.m. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Well, that brings us to the winking out of the lights as though they disappeared or raced off at an impossibly fast speed. The easiest explanation for this is that the flares just burned themselves out. The two BSBs had a lifespan of about five minutes, so they were going to burn out soon after the first sightings were reported anyway. But witnesses in Paradise Valley and Scottsdale were adamant that the lights closest to the ground appeared to go out before those higher up, which had been lodged earlier. So what gives? Well, remember when I said that if you drew a line from Scottsdale toward that buried Goldwater bombing range to the southwest, that you'd run straight across the Estrella Mountains, right? Well, Sierra Estrella, the highest point in this small range, happened to be directly under the lights as they appeared in the sky. But, since it was pitch black dark by that time, no one could see the mountain, not even its silhouette against the black horizon to the west. Knowing what we know now, that the lights were flares, how does this jibe with their going out at differing times? Well, after initially jumping on the gotta-be-an-alien bandwagon, somebody over at the Discovery Channel came to their senses and decided to have another go at the video footage of the hovering lights shot by Mike Christon from his backyard. Until then, the Discovery Channel had taken expert image analyst Jim Dilatoso's spectrographic examination and his claim that the lights couldn't possibly be flares as gospel. In fact, up to this point in the story, Dilatoso seems to be the only expert, and I use that term loosely, with whom any of the news organizations an educational programming is consulted. But this time, they brought in a true image expert, a Dr. Leonid Rudin Rudin from Cognitech, a Pasadena-based imaging firm. Now, Rudin took the video of the lights as well as a daytime shot of the same area where Sierra Estrella Mountain could now clearly be seen. Remember, the mountain was invisible in the night video. And after matching their zoom and adjusting for their angle, and all other critical factors so they would perfectly match, he overlaid one image on top of the other. The result was not at all surprising and an embarrassment to the Discovery Channel and every other news media outlet who had ordained Jim Dilatoso as the Spectrum Whisperer. Looking at the video frame by frame, one can clearly see that the lights seem to go out as they ascend past the upper ridgeline of Sierra Estrella Mountain. Since the mountain wasn't visible at night, no one thought to take its presence into account. But there it was, in all its pixelated glory. The flares disappeared as they dropped behind the edge of the mountain.
But in keeping with the Cooked Up X-Files paradigm, local KSAZ Channel 10 performed their own experiment with the Christon footage, and they not only concluded that the lights were in front of the mountains, not behind them, but cryptically hinted that Cognitech had for some mysterious reason faked their results in some sort of elaborate cover-up. When asked who conducted the experiment for KSAS and what mapping alignment software was used, the KSAS guys said, oh, it was some dude in the video editing booth who slapped it together and that no imaging software was used to correct the disparities between the nighttime and the daytime shots. Yeah, so what? Channel 10 got the results they wanted. Not the truth, but a sensational story that was sure to sell more ad time. So let's review. It was a group of high-flying aircraft that made up the V, and military flares that comprised the hovering lights over the desert. Every bit of concrete evidence that we have has shown this to be the case. It's no mystery that eyewitness testimony, the bane of court systems the world over, are far from reliable. Hardly a day goes by without someone falsely accused of a crime being released from prison after being convicted solely on the testament of an eyewitness. To err is human. It's part of who we are. But we seem to have lost the ability to acknowledge this inherent fallibility and have become incapable of entertaining ideas that don't jibe with our own preconceived notions. And the capacity to publicly admit we might be wrong seems to have passed into extinction. Well, that would seem to wrap the whole thing up, but for a few nagging details. While these tidbits aren't necessarily critical to determining the true nature of the Phoenix Lights, they do go to the point of why misinformation about this incident has been so hard to shake. One festering thorn in the side of this lingering story is Jim Dilatoso, the self-professed imaging expert that everybody and their uncle ran to for a spectrographic breakdown on the lights. Pointing to computer screens while rattling off technical terms and scientific theorems wildly out of context, Dilatoso convinced the world that the lights could not have been planes or flares or anything of this earth for that matter. His imaging analysis proved it. There's only one little problem with this, and that is, Jim Delatoso is not an imaging expert. In fact, he's not an expert of any kind. Not to put too fine a point on it, but the man is nothing more than a snake oil salesman and a media whore. The first thing you need to know about Jim Delatoso is that he has no idea what he's talking about when it comes to spectrographic analysis of light. He claims that he used sophisticated imaging software to extract the spectrograms or the breakdown of the different light colors of the Phoenix lights from video footage and that the results proved that the lights were not of terrestrial origin. Well, this sophisticated imaging software that he used was not something that either he or anyone else at his own village labs developed. It was Image Pro Plus, a software suite created by Media Cybermedics. And this was one of the precursors to Photoshop, I believe. Anyway, Dilatoso claims that the company that sold him this software package assured him 
that it could accomplish the analysis that he was claiming that it did. Media Cybermedics begs to differ. Jeff Knipe, who was involved in the development of Image Pro Plus, states that the only thing close to what Dilatoso was claiming he could accomplish with the bundle was to extract what is known as a histogram of the red, green, and blue components of the light. Actual spectroscopy is another matter entirely and was way beyond the software's intended use or even its capability. Point in fact, it is impossible to perform spectrographic analysis of an image captured on video in that the image on the video is not the original light source. It is the camera's interpretation of that light and nothing more. Camcorders have small, lousy optics. The images that they capture are not true to life, but best guesses based on light passing through the lens and striking a photoelectric sensor. This sensor then converts that signal into voltage and then translates those signals again before recording them onto magnetic tape. Remember the movie Multiplicity when Michael Keaton's clones kept getting more and more inept with each successive generation? Video imaging is like this. The imaging on the tape does not share the spectral characteristics of the original light source. And for Dilatoso to claim he's using Image Pro Plus to perform spectroscopy studies is ludicrous. That would be tantamount to saying that you can judge the flavor profile of a hamburger by licking the menu. The visual characteristics of the image may seem similar, but the actual internal makeup of that item being examined cannot be determined secondhand. He would have had to point a spectrometer not Image Pro Plus, at that light as it was happening in order to achieve the results that he claims that he is achieving. What he says, it just doesn't work that way. But that hasn't stopped Dilatoso from becoming the darling of the New Age UFO set, whose members have long ago stopped looking for proof of aliens landing on Earth, because that is to them a foregone conclusion. And he is more than willing to spout off his inane science to anyone who'll point a camera at him, making sure to collect his consulting fee at the time, of course. If not in front of a camera, you might find him at a UFO convention, charging the gullible 20 bucks or so for an autograph or a picture. But where you won't find him is in the offices of Village Labs, because as of July 1997, Jim DeLatoso was summarily booted out of the warehouse from which he was working, for failure to pay the rent. And what did Village Labs actually do? Not a damn thing. Dilatoso bragged to anyone who would listen that he was involved in this project in conjunction with TRW to create a global network of supercomputers that would change mankind. One of the few naive enough to actually believe this pitch was Jordy Hormel heir to the processed meat fortune that produces spam. None of the money needed for rent on the office spaces, equipment, and even employee salaries at Village Labs was ever paid from profits generated by the visionary shamanism of Jim Dilatoso. It was all paid for by poor old gullible Jordy Hormel, who poured more than $2 million into Village Labs 
and got nothing in return. Dilatoso claimed that Village Labs had invested $3 million into the joint supercomputer venture with TRW, only to later backtrack and admit that he lied. He later claimed that he had fallen prey to a targeted conspiracy by TRW who wanted to steal his technological secrets. Another lie. Simply put, he didn't have any secrets to steal. But Jim Delatoso isn't the only person to try and capitalize off the phenomenon of the Phoenix Lights. Remember Francis Emma Barwood, the local council person who called for the initial investigation into the lights? Like Dilatoso, Barwood saw her public cachet skyrocket shortly after the story of the lights went national. Many of her constituents saw her as a lone wolf, the only government official with the courage to take on the military and the old boy government establishment in the search for the truth. She even attempted to leverage this newfound celebrity in an attempt to run for Secretary of State. She even agreed to deliver the keynote speech to the 7th Annual International UFO Congress. But you know what? Appearing at that one event proved political suicide for the former councilwoman. She lost her bid as Secretary of State and has never served an elected office again. And remember Governor Fife Symington, who derided the lights and had an underling dress as an alien during a press conference? Well, in September of that year, the governor was convicted on a slew of 21 charges, including extortion and bank fraud. The convictions were overturned on a jury technicality, and before he could be retried, he received a presidential pardon from Bill Clinton. Fun fact, Symington had rescued a drunk 19-year-old Bill Clinton from nearly drowning after getting caught in a riptide off a beach in Hyannisport. Anyway. His political career in ruins, he decided to enroll in culinary school, graduating from Le Cordon Bleu in Scottsdale. But it wasn't too long before he began itching to run for office again, but initial polling numbers were not in his favor. So in 2007, Five Symington did a complete 180 and claimed that not only were the Phoenix Lights of extraterrestrial origin, but that he was also an eyewitness. The former governor boasted, quote, I'm a pilot, and I know just about every machine that flies, unquote. Now, if you've ever worked in the aviation industry, this all-knowing qualifier from pilots, particularly those with a military background, is all too familiar. They're a pilot, ergo, they know everything. But embracing the UFO demographic did no more for Symington's political resurgence than it did for Barwood. And although he continues to threaten Arizonans with another run at office, today he is yet to follow through. The antics of buffoons like Jim Dilatoso might be amusing, but for the tangible and far-reaching damage they've inflicted on basic human intelligence. And the lies, pseudoscience, and institutionalized distrust of the military, government, and even science itself are deep and ongoing. Almost any time a television program airs on the subject of UFOs, odds are you're going to find Jim Dilatoso and his ever-present bank of movie set prop computers mugging for the camera and deflecting questions about his lack of formal education then why do all of these programs continue to spout this huckster's drivel? 
because these shows, most of them made more than a decade ago, are in the can, so to speak. They were produced at the height of the hysteria when interest in the subject sold papers and ad space and political opinion defaulted to the fringers. And simply put, these programs are paid for. They're free and clear. History, Discovery, and all the other channels can rerun them ad nauseum for a fraction of the cost of producing a new show in which these absurd notions might be challenged, and in doing so, rake in ad revenues. Oh sure, some of them will slap on a brief disclaimer as the credits roll and ask the audience to consider both sides of the story and make up their own mind. But this is just a pathetic cop-out. Media is no longer truth. Media today is what sells. And what sells is mystery. What sells is the anti-establishment. What sells is a charismatic scam artist babbling on about spectroscopic alchemy and government conspiracies, all the while proclaiming that the question of whether we are alone in the universe is now a rhetorical one. What apparently doesn't sell are highly educated and highly trained scientists attempting to explain the rudiments of physics and cosmology to a lay audience, many of whom are convinced that the Apollo moon landings were all faked. (sighs) Go figure. By now, one would think that the Phoenix Lights would be yesterday's news, having just passed its 24-year milestone. But I shudder to think of the media frenzy that will accompany the phenomenon's silver anniversary next March. Old witnesses and new, some claiming they are finally breaking their silence, will emerge from hibernation and proclaim to anyone with a press credential that, oh yeah, they saw the lights, and they were definitely not flares or military planes. They'll look squarely at the camera, swear that the thing was from another world, before once again slinking back into the shadows. That is, until the next documentary crew filming a fluff piece on UFOs rides into town. And the channel's history and discovery will once again parade Jim DeLatoso before his adoring public, professing his expertise and scientific knowledge in all things alien. And as such, a new generation will fall under the spell of the Phoenix Lights. One can only hope that it won't take another 25 years before this paranormal milestone will finally be recognized for what it is, a millstone weighing down the pursuit of scientific truth. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Beyond the Fringe. I hope you've enjoyed listening in as much as I've enjoyed sharing the story with you. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast using your favorite app. If you'd like to follow along with us on Twitter, it's at PodcastBTF. And if you'd like to drop us an email telling us how much you enjoyed this episode, or if you have suggestions for future episodes, you can drop us a line at PodcastBTF at Outlook.com. Until next time, this is Jay for Beyond the Fringe reminding you to keep it real.